Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Juster, and with us today is Diane Kendall. Diane is the author of four poetry chapbooks, the most recent of which is Prison Terms. She also co-edited the tribute anthology In the Company of Russell Atkins and published with photographer Steve Kagan a collection of translations from Nicaraguan poets called And a Pencil to Write Your Name. The recipient of two Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Awards in Poetry, Kendig has also received awards from the Fulbright Foundation and the National Endowment for Humanities, and she has held artist residencies at Yaddo and the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Her book, Prison Terms, was a finalist for the Kathy Smith Bowers Contest. She won a Sears Foundation Award for Teaching and Outstanding Educator Award at the University of Findlay, where she was a professor for two decades. She has served as an educator across several colleges across Ohio, and her work has been published in numerous anthologies and other publications. Diane, thank you so very much for coming today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Jeremy. To start us off, would you like to read a poem? Yes, I'd like to read a poem from my latest book, Woman with a Fan, on Maria Blanchard. They are acrostic and biographical poems about a woman who lived at the turn of the century in in uh, Spain, but she spent most of her life in Paris with Picasso and uh, Diego Rivera. <clears throat> this is an ekphrastic poem about a famous painting of hers called The Ice Cream Cart, and we'll do a link for people to see this later if they want to, but I don't think you need to see it. It is a picture of an ice cream cart with a boy standing in front of it who has clearly just won an award and he's getting an ice cream for a treat. The ice cream cart. I had seen this scene as I was meant to, a certificate on the ground, the crown thrown on top, the fluffy bow of his white shirt matching the white band of his boater, his stiff black jacket, the scalloped bowl of vanilla ice cream. I tried to see what the critic saw in the angle of his arm against the paving bricks, the rhomboidalness of it, as they say in Spanish not the aesthetics that got me. My friend, a nurse said, look at the girl behind the cart. And I do. See how I missed her, barely able to stretch to hold the ledge of the cart. I remember that reach to the shelf that held suckers at the bank, to the bookshelf where the librarian waved for me to get books myself, though I was not tall enough to. Eventually, they were handed down to me by an aunt who had the scarlet letter whose A I could not grasp. So I don't mean my reach left me with the nothing that this girl's does. She has arrived after the boy and has thrown her cane down on top of his laurels, would like some sweet herself, holds on with one hand for support, waves her other hand just above the edge, but it seems the ice cream man left the picture once he served the boy whose backs turned on her, eyes staring further off, blasé. He's used to such awards, such treatment and treats. Well, thank you very much. Now, this the, the, the poem that this book is from, Woman with a Fan, um, you said you started this in 1986. That's crazy to me. Like, so... Talk about that, please, if you don't mind, because that's so cool. So where did that inspiration come from and what kept you working on it just all the way through? 
Um, it was about 19, I'm a big fan of Federico Garcia Lorca, the Spanish poet who was murdered by the fascists in 1939, uh, in part because some of his poetry in my college books were so simple, even I could translate them. Despedida, his, I just loved, and I translated that for myself. There were no translations then. But I had gotten the book of his prose pieces and uh, the very first, and I had read it years, a year or two before, but I was rereading the book and I realized the first piece was very, very short. And it was a eulogy for an artist may, named Maria Blanchard. And he said wild, crazy things about her that she was um, that she was a hunchback. It was the first thing people told him that he carried images of her up to his bedroom. Um, and so I went looking for her art and I couldn't find any. The librarian at my college sent for a book. It got photocopied and sent to me, but it was back, back then everything was only black and white. So her artwork was just like ink blots. I couldn't even see the artwork. And then I found a little story about her in Diego Rivera's biography. I read that they were studio mates and he used to cook these big dinners and one night he cooked a dinner, he cooked steak and he didn't finish it and he just left it and thought she would clean it up. I had been writing poems about Frida Kahlo and knew that Frida Kahlo followed him around. She used to take him lunch and she hand embroidered napkins that said, I adore you, Teodoro. And clearly Maria Blanchard was not that kind of woman. As a matter of fact, she let the steak sit there until it smelled so bad, the other studio artists asked the janitor to come carry it away. And I thought, what am I writing poems about Frida Kahlo about? This is the woman that I really want to know about. It was just so hard. There was nothing about her. And, and I just kept looking and looking and little by little, more and more came out. And I know now because, um, because she was deformed, because she was a woman, because she hung out with all these famous men, she was very overlooked in her time. And it's only been in our time that um, some feminist critics in Spain have just been determined to make people know how really great she was. And, and because of the art itself, that that's what she poured herself into. Um, there was one more thing I was going to say, but I've lost it. So I'll let that. Oh, the other thing I want to say about how I work as a writer, um, I'm sort of a William Stafford poet. I get up in the morning and I just write a poem. These poets decide, OK, I'm going to write a poem, a, a book about, and then they proceed to do nothing but that for the next couple of years. It's just so foreign to me. So I would write a poem about her and then I wouldn't write anything for three years, but then I'd find something and I'd come back to it. And it was never with the idea of a book. Really, the book just um, formalized a couple years ago when Word Gathering, which is a magazine about arts and disability, their editor said, would you write an essay about this about her? Would you write an essay about that? I wrote three essays and it made me write more poems. And pretty soon I had 60 pages, so I had to put a book together. But what was that, 40 years later? I don't know what. But in the meantime, I was writing poems and publishing books and doing other things. I just never let go. I'm, I'm slow. The real answer to your question, Jeremy, is I'm very slow. <laughs> Not as half as slow as I am, though. That's okay. <laughs> What is, what is it like having that person in your head for so long? 
Does it change you as a person? Do you, do you she, wasn't my, she wasn't in my head all that time. You know, she was coming and going like other people in your lives do. Okay. So, you know, I just had a, I just put a quote from St. Exuberay up on Facebook that I loved. You know, he was a pilot in World War I when there weren't many pilots. And he said, when you're up there flying, you think about the fact that there are people that have been gone for you for a long, long time. And yet, you know, they're out there faithful. So I guess that's how I was from Maria Blanchard. I was out there a long time faithful, but we didn't always see each other. I didn't always think about her. She wasn't always in my head. She was coming and going the way I was coming and going. And still writing Frida Kahlo poems and <laughs> and teaching and bought, moving to Boston and my sister dying and coming back to Ohio to take care of my father and, you know, other things were happening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess I was looking at it totally different, you know, because it was interesting reading some of the things you've written on your blog and, and the, finding some of the information about the book itself. It, it, it really made me curious because that, that seemed like a really long time to have it, you know. To, to sit on that kind of stuff. Are the essays in the book too? Yes, there are three essays, four works of art, and probably 40, 45 pages of poems. That's really cool. Yeah, and the links to some of the art that I, I couldn't afford more than that. I would have loved to have more uh, art. Um, and, and the money's coming back to me now. The book is selling pretty well, but I couldn't afford to put more in, just in, not just in terms of the permissions, but in what art costs to produce. So right now I'm trying to share with people links to what's online. And um, at some conferences, I'll be sharing some things that aren't available online. Yeah, okay, cool. So she was never like an obsession. She was more like a friend that comes and goes in your life. And you see her and then you say goodbye to her. She moves to Wyoming for a while, you know, Yeah. and you get a couple letters or. I, I would love to, to be able to have a friend for 35 continuous years. You know, that'd be nice. Even an occasional one. <laughs> oh, I do. Cause I hold on to friends so fast. I, um, I must drive and students. I mean, I have 50 of my former students are my friends on Facebook and my friends in life, you know? Um, I just really like people. <laughs> I hate them too. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> that can be a given sometimes. <laughs> what What about your other books? Did they kind of co coalesce in a similar way? Is, yeah. is that how your writing goes? Yeah, prison terms. You know, was about my teaching in prison, but that was eighteen years. I started in nineteen eighty six, and um. I left Finley in 2002, but I still have done some prison work. And I just sort of would write a poem about something and put it in a folder. Uh, now it's a folder on my computer, but for a long time, it was literally a folder. Um, <laughs> the places we find them ourselves. Uh, I started, I needed, you know, I wanted to do a chapbook, but you got to have a goddamn theme <laughs> so I'm looking for oh well you know I have a lot of poems about Ohio and I have some poems about prison so you know I started pulling poems from I've been writing since um I've been writing since I was 10 and I've been writing poems since I was in college I graduated in 1972 and I just save everything I save everything I've got some really horrible stuff and I wish I could throw it away but I save everything so when I'm looking to put things together then I just start 
pulling from all different periods of my life. I, you and I, I were talking earlier, and I mentioned that I was suicidal in my 20s and 30s. And you know, it's it to me, it's the great reward of having stayed alive that now I have all this, all this time, all this stuff built on. I'm so glad I lived. Yeah, no, I, I'm. I mean, I know this is underwhelming, but I'm very glad you lived too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, did what about your right? Did your writing? switch to like did you find that the writing that you did when you were younger and things were harder did that when you you know you you had said once you hit a certain age things got a lot easier you know you're mentally free and I'm wondering about the writing you know did how did that change I don't know that the writing changed somebody else would have to um judge that what I know is um I carried so much anxiety about it early on. Um, I'm from a very working class background and writer was not something I was ever going to be. My mother encouraged my writing and my reading early on until she realized that I really wanted to do this instead of being a mother and a, and a wife and a housekeeper. And then she was just absolutely shocked and panicked. Um, Where did this come from? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> So then I had a whole, I had a lot of anxiety about it. And it was, you know, that was the 60s and 70s. I'm reading about Anne Sexton and um, Sylvia Plath right now. You know, and people say, oh, those women were fighting sexism. And we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, at, at, at Sylvia Plath's graduation, Adelaide Stevenson, the former presidential candidate, got up and told the brightest women in the United States who were at Smith College was they were in college to become bright women for their husbands to come home to at night and serve cocktails to, you know. And so the idea that she would be a poet, she knew she had to be it, but she wasn't getting any encouragement from the outside. So I wouldn't say I got no encouragement. I had wonderful teachers and I had a wonderful college experience, but I always carried this anxiety that I can't do this. I can't afford to do it. And the older I got and the more I had just kept doing it, well, the anxiety fell away so that I think the process for me is the same, but I just don't feel tied up. And when I go to the desks, I still feel excited, but I don't feel tied up in knots anxiety over it. So that part has dropped away. And it's just because I've gotten, I've gotten old. <laughs> Does it make it easier to share? Mm. 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 I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it was ever really hard for me to share. Okay. Um, when I was in my 20s, I found the Post League of Greater Cleveland Workshop. And I had never had anybody to share it with uh, in college, but people were so snippy in college, so critical, so angry. And I came to Cleveland and there was this whole group of writers who shared poems and shared their lives. We had picnics and we, had, we went out to drink at the Mad Greek and it was, it was so easy to share. It was wonderful to share. Even when Cy Dossel would tell me he hated my poem, you know, it was, it was, that was great because he at least felt something. So once I found Cleveland, I don't think sharing was ever difficult. I might have still been nervous when I got up to read the poem, but the experience of just getting any kind of feedback was great. Yeah. 
Now you, you've used poetry in a whole bunch of different capacities in your life. And you had mentioned that, you know, you used to do uh, workshops in prisons and extensively. I mean, that's where one of your collections came from. Um, And you, you, one of you, one of the prisons you were at was in Lima. Is that correct? Yes. That's because I was at the University of Finley and we had a four-year college program there. So I actually taught college classes at Lima, but then I had students that were just really interested. And then once they got through with my classes, they wanted more. So I used to go in on Fridays for free and do a workshop for anybody that wanted to come. But I also taught creative writing there almost either two courses uh, once a year or one course every semester okay and and how did how did the involvement with the prisons happen was there a facilitating event the prison staff how did you get involved doing workshops for uh prisons i did it at that prison and i was teaching there I was teaching there. Oh, you were teaching at the prison. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. I gotcha. Finley had a regular college program there. And our president, Ken Zirkle, just said there were programs in Ohio whose names I would not mention, and some even now today, who do their programs all staffed by adjuncts. And the prison made an agreement with us is that we would have full-time professors coming in. So... I mean, I was going in with Bob Ewald. I was going in with Bob Ewald, just the top professors in philosophy and English. And we were teaching our, and Lou Capra, who had taught in Michigan. And we were going in and we were teaching our hearts out. And uh, I mean, everybody knew, I am still in, one of the guys is in a halfway house in Cleveland right now. And we talk about this. We all knew we were doing something incredibly special i'm still in touch with men from that program and i and i left there in 2002 i and these are men that i had in 1985 so um they would take my classes and then i would come in once every two weeks on friday night and anybody could come and some were my students and some were other people okay not students yeah and then at the end when I, there were the last two years, my sister was dying of cancer in Minnesota and my husband was teaching in Boston and I was tra- traveling everywhere. And I, I was teaching on the campus, but I wasn't teaching at the prison, but I still went in for the workshop and the Vietnam Vets organization sponsored me. Then the college didn't, but the Vietnam Vets did. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they were, they were terrific. So, so how, would, how would you, what were the differences that you noticed like teaching at Lima versus Finley? First of all, I had wonderful students at Finley that I'm still in touch with. Shout out to Lisa Nardi, who's an administrator at a historic African-American college in Baltimore. And one of my students whose name I can't mention, who works for the CIA and uh, a student who's a wonderful middle school teacher in, in Oregon. Um, wonderful, wonderful students. But most of them were the traditional 18-year-old college students. And at the prison, I had 40-year-old men who were in for for really bad crimes. I mean, it was medium security, and we had maximum security prisoners. And, And this prison has been shut down. It was the it was Lima Correctional, which was the second largest concrete. Pentagon-shaped building in the United States. The largest was the Pentagon in D.C., but ours was all concrete, and it was a mean, 
place. It was mean. The building was mean. Every room was mean. Some of the people in there were mean, but my, my students were not. So they had experiences to write about. I mean, I was telling somebody, uh, the incubator had a panel on people who taught in prison a couple of weeks ago. I was saying, you know, that one of the funniest pieces was one of my students at the prison wrote a piece about being high on LSD when he was taking a Cleveland bus and the bus driver <laughs> looked like a dinosaur with the really, and I mean, we were in the aisles laughing. None of my students at Finley ever had, ever, ever had any experience like that. So it was mostly experiential and drive. The men at the prison had all had, most of them had really hard lives. They had made a mess of one thing after another, and they saw college as their last chance. One guy said to me, one night it got very quiet, and he said, I have effed up everything in my life and I don't want to F up this. Whereas on campus, I had one student that said to me, I'm just taking college because I don't want to have to get a job. My parents are going to make me get a job if I'm not in college, you know. So the difference in how you're learning and what you want to do when you feel like college is really a chance versus a place that you're keeping warm, uh, there was that. And some of those men went on to get four-year degrees and did wonderful work in their work, some of them in their personal lives. You know, I saw one man nurse his wife to the end with cancer, you know, and we have several politicians in this country who cashed it in on their wives when they got cancer. So just seeing people rise to the occasion like that was really wonderful. It, it, it has been an honor to be to make the walk with them these 20 years since then. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you know, one of the other, you know, ways that you because you're politically active and you know you used writing in that capacity before one of the interesting things you had written a few years ago you were talking about women's marches in 2017 and you had written that you had come back from this march and you guys were all amped up and everything and then you came back and then you thought what the hell's the point like what did did we do anything and you know then then you rallied around that and said no you know what we did do something so i'm curious if you would mind, could you speak to that? Like, what is the point of polit political writing or activist writing or writing on behalf of somebody? Because I have that question in my head a lot. I've asked it on this podcast already a couple of times, and I'm, I'm curious to get your answer to that. Well, you'll have to stop me because I could spend the rest of the time on this. But <laughs> one thing is, in 2017, I did not go on that march. If you look at the blog, well, I'll back up and tell you what I did do. In the 70s, I was um, a really anxious person. I know now I had a lot of bipolar issues and I would go to those marches and I would not sleep for days and nights and I would just be totally screwed up to the hilt high and just feel like I just didn't see that my participation did anything good for me and I wasn't sure that being just being another body there did any good so the in the 80s I made a pledge that if I was going to do any I, um when Carolyn Forche's book The Country Between Us came out it transformed my life because I saw that what you could do with writing is witness one of the quotes she had from a teacher of hers was 
everywhere and always go after that which is lost. And that's what I decided I was going to do with my life in my writing, that I couldn't go off on those marches. There may be a time, there have been times in Canton, Ohio, I stood on a corner, but I, I can't do that very often. It just, it makes me really nervous and incapable for a couple of days. But with my writing, I can do things. So in that blog, what I did is I stayed home and I was in touch with friends in Boston, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, who went to marches in DC, in Boston, in Cleveland. Um, there was one other one. And they, they FaceTimed me all day and I did a blog of what they were doing. So one two of the women who hadn't seen each other for 30 years met up on the subway and knew what they were both writing to me and they had a big experience. So, um, so from and what I did for that blog was write about what was going on in, in all these different places because I felt that was something more I can do. Um, and so that's what the prison stuff is too. Um, I've gotten really involved since my when my book came out, instead of giving a reading, I invited three prison groups to come and speak. And then we had a party afterwards. So the Oberlin Shakespeare in Prison program came, the Ohio Innocence program came, and the Kent I-13 program, I think it's called, came. Sure. And I got the, the Ohio Innocence Project sent five people who had been exonerated for crimes they didn't commit. One who spent 39 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. I have become so fond of those people. They're all on Facebook with me. And um, the only, and I, there isn't much I can do for the Ohio Innocence Project, but every time there's a story about somebody who was exonerated, I post it on Facebook because I think many people in the United States do not realize how many innocent people are thrown into prison because of our system, because of bad cops, because of bad DAs. Um, and they're good of all of those. But I, I'm just trying to raise consciousness about it. I don't think Facebook is a very good way to do much. But so far, that's what I'm doing for the Ohio Innocence Project, along with a couple other little things. Ooh, so politics. Um, the other big thing for me with Nicaragua, when I read Carolyn Forche's book about Central America, uh, my friend Steve Kagan, who's a wonderful photographer and a wonderful political activist, art activist in Cleveland, gave me poems to translate. And I did them. And then that ended up, I got a Fulbright to actually teach in Nicaragua. And I went down there. And mostly what I, I feel in Nicaragua I do is I witness because the political system is so complex. A lot of people don't know it right now, but 10 people were trying to run against Daniel Ortega for president in November. And in April, he locked them all up. One is a mother with a four-year-old child. They took her away in front of her four-year-old child. The family does not know where these people are or um, no lawyers or family members have seen them. I have some information about them that I'm not allowed to tell, really personal stuff I got from former students. And I'm just waiting to see, to write, to write about what, and right now what's going on in Afghanistan is terrible. It's terrible, but I feel like Nicaragua has fallen off the map. Yeah. Um, 
It doesn't, it doesn't have any awareness. And I remember reading Car Carolyn's poem, The Colonel. Yeah. The time I read, read that, dumps the ears on the table. I'm just like, what the heck? And, and what's sad is the political situation has not been stable since. And at that point, it hadn't been stable for a long time either. Right. Yeah. My dad died three years ago, and he used to say about Afghanistan, those people have been fighting for a thousand years. How are we going to stop it? And I could never answer his question, and I can't answer his question today, but um, we just all have to, they're coming here now. Maybe they can witness to us. Maybe we can figure out a way to help whoever we can. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you when you write, um, how how does the poetry scene in Nicaragua work? Like, does it, what's, I, I'm, what is your involvement in the community? And, you know, what do you see when you're involved with people from that country? It was so different when I started in 1986 when Steve brought me the book because um, there was such hope they had overthrown a dictator. And Ernesto Cardinal, who died just two years ago, I believe, at age 93, had gone into the countryside and taken poetry as a way to teach literacy. And the country was alive with poetry. I, I can't tell you how exciting it was. But Ortega, who was then one of the good guys, he's now the president and he's become a dictator. He's terrible. He's the pe person that has locked up these 10 people. So everything has become clamped down there again. One of my students wrote this week and said, um, we are just all laying low and hoping, and we know the election is going to be terrible, and we're just hoping things will get better after that. And I said, oh, Daniel, you know, you, you Nicaraguans have such a long view, and we Americans want everything to happen so fast. So when I was there, when I first started writing, and when I was there, it was very exciting, and now it's just really scary and repressed and terrible and horrible yeah okay all right well um i'm gonna pivot a little bit uh <laughs> not not to break the mood i don't want to push too much too well we can't much. say any more about that except down with daniel ortega that's all i have to say <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll echo that sentiment that's <laughs> um at one point you you wrote in in 2015 on your blog uh it was it was you were making observations about Ohio's poetry community. Huh. You had said, you know, so I've not been happy with what I perceive as extracurricular arts in Ohio lately, especially in the chosen, my chosen field of creative writing. As nearly as I can tell, most of the creative writing activities for school kids revolve around contests. So I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. And uh, in, do you think that's still true? Do you think and, and if you were going to replace contests as a primary means of getting people involved, how, how would you balance that? What else would you throw in the soup? First, I want to go back to your first sentence where I said, you know, I, I can't remember what you said for the first sentence, but the first sentence um, doesn't make clear that this was about creative writing for children, which was the title of my piece. So I think there's a lot out there for adults. I think there's more for adults than a lot of other states. But what I'm really not happy with is that every time somebody almost I shouldn't exaggerate my husband says oh you always say always every no but the majority of times the vast majority of times that anybody wants to do poetry with kids 
they have a poetry contest. And I hate it. I hate it. I hate it because when there are contests, there are winners and there are losers. Okay, so one kid wins a poetry contest and what happens to everybody else? Okay, or you give a winner to everybody and then that's pretty meaningless. And one of the things I hate about it is I think that comes out of the whole sports complex that is the state, which I hate. I'm from Canton, Ohio, home of the football hall of fame. And in my high school years, I spent more time in football pep rallies than the Catholic kids spent in their little, whatever you call the religious service in the morning. And that was not right. So that's a little side trip, but I, you know, when it, why should poetry come down to winners and losers? And I have a million ideas of what else could be done. One of them is happening this Monday in Canton. And by the time this plays, that will be over. But on Labor Day, Stark Arts is having a family day. And they've done this before. I've participated in these before. Once it was the Cultural Arts Center in the middle of winter. This is going to be at the new Centennial Plaza outside. And the weatherman looks like he's pitched in. And we're going to have 75 degrees in sunshine. Yes. And they have um, Lindsay Bonilla, a wonderful children's writer, local children's writer and theater person whose book was, whose children's book was just reviewed in the Wall Street, uh, Wall Street. What is the Wall Street newspaper? The Wall Street Journal. Journal. <laughs> um, she's going to be on stage. They're having music on stage. And they've asked all of us who are artists in education, which I do for Stark County, we're called the SMARTS program, SM Capital Arts, SMARTS, um, to have a table of artwork, make and take. The kids will make a piece of art and take it with them. And the last time I did it, I did Dada's poem. I gave the kids envelopes of words and they had to tape them together and make a poem out of it. And um, this is on my blog, Kendig Writes for Kids, you can see. Um, it was fun. On Monday, I'm going to do blackout poetry. Do you know that? That's where, um, is, that's where you take a paragraph and you erase sections of it and leave words behind to make a yes phrase make a yes. poem. you black out everything you find words that would make a, a smaller poem within a larger piece of prose and then you black out everything else well oh hell <laughs> <laughs> it's my cat <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> jeremy's cat's tail just appeared <laughs> you all will miss that um i found uh i'm in on the po women poets listserv and there's a wonderful woman poet in california named ruth bavetta who does blackout poetry but she uses color so i've got a bunch of magic markers left over from my last artist residency and we're going to do color out poetry i'm right now tomorrow i'm going to get big books and cut out pages and um i'm going to have a big table of these and a big table of magic markers i'm going to have examples so the kids can see and they will take and make a poem for the day um so those are two things that I've done, but I think I made a list when you asked about this. So I said, um, workshops, readings. Why can't you just have kids give up and have open readings? Why do they have a contest? I mean, my local library has one, but you have to submit to a contest before you are in the open reading. And everybody gets to read, but then why call it a contest? So, so my first two ideas are workshops, um, readings, and then I have here, in other words, 
we have kids do things with poetry that all writers do, except for contests. Except for contests. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, I and a couple friends in my writing group, we do not submit to anything you have to pay for. So I submit to no fee contests, but let me tell you, there aren't many of those. Wurgleflomp is one of the few. Um, you know, I just feel that's a way for the losers to be <laughs> compensating the winners, and I'm not going to do that. So I think for kids, we should be doing the same thing that most, and most writers don't spend most of their money and time on contests. Why should kids only be doing that? Yeah, and, and I always thought, that one of the issues that poetry had was it, it just didn't update the way other mediums did. You know, like fiction, if you read a book from, the, you know, if you read a Victorian era novel, you can tell. But if you read, you know, The Hunger Games, it feels like a modern novel, but poetry never seemed to have that update. And, you know, I, I think that it's so rooted in stereotypes. Like it, it either has to rhyme or... You know, it's it's angsty stuff that teenagers do or it's like bad, like Instagram stuff. But that's not the case. I think what a lot of people are missing is that there's a whole bunch of poetry out there. And I've always wondered how to better package and deliver that. Like, how do you get people at a younger age into it? You know, well, I think the Ohio Arts Council always did a good job of that. I was in their program from 1980 up till a couple of years ago, and they send artists of all ilks out into the schools. And my goodness, you had Joel Littman and Nick Muscat in Toledo and um, uh, Ray McNeese from Cleveland. And we were all certainly doing other things, mm. but it was a very small minority that you that we hit I will say and Bob Foxman produced an anthology every year of the kids work that you know reflected that um so I but I I and one of the re, one of the ways I feel that poetry hasn't done it is use of the internet my last years at Finley I taught a course called e-poetics and what we were studying and this was in 2002 how is the internet affecting poetry and how is poetry affecting the internet? And it was a 300 level course, mostly for business majors and hazmat majors. So these were not your typical students interested in poetry. Yeah. I had them, uh, they each had to take a poet's website and analyze what was going, what was good, what they would suggest different. Um, and one of the things I learned is they loved poetry when they could see the poet, when they could hear the poet, all the things at least I fell in love with. I mean, I always loved poetry, but when I went to college and William Stafford came to campus, oh my Lord, that was just a totally different experience from always getting it on the page. So I saw that. And then there were um, the e-poets e who were making poems move on the page, you know, and then had art to go with it. And um, I just, and and it's how I ended up doing the Cuyahoga County Public Library thing. I said, you know, internet, the internet, I'm telling you, people are out there who want to read it, but they don't want to get in their car and drive to it. So um, I think that's another way that poets need to use that, use that more. I think that in some ways that COVID was beneficial just because so many people can invite people to readings because they're online this podcast totally possible only because everybody started using zoom 
You know, yeah. I, like like when we were talking before we we started recording, like this was never something I could have pitched pre-pandemic. Just it wouldn't have happened because most people didn't start using Zoom heavily until they had to. Right. I went to a reading. Kevin Prufer is a poet from Cleveland who runs the creative writing poetry uh, program in Houston now. But he's always been a Cleveland boy. He always comes home. So I went to a reading he gave with a whole bunch of people in Massachusetts, a Zoom reading. And yeah. I got there. It was the first big Zoom reading I went to. There were over 100 people there. I'm paging through the Zoom pages to see who I know that I can chat with in the chat. <laughs> you know that, oh my gosh, that was so fun. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, so what do you think the difference is? Because you lived in Massachusetts. You lived in Boston for, you said 12 years? Yes. 12 years. So what, what, what would you say the difference is between Massachusetts poetry scene and Ohio's that, that you could tell at least? I'm going to say this, and if anybody gets pissed, they can get pissed. I think <laughs> Massachusetts is so snooty, and I think <laughs> Ohio is so open and accepting. And you and I were talking about this before we talked tonight, that you look at the Ohio Poetry Association, you know, and you look at, you look at George Bulger, you know, you look at um, the, uh, Lucas, you look at the people that have been the poet laureates. They're just, they're on Facebook with all of us. They're chatting with all of us. George bitched at me about one of my posts a couple of weeks ago. You know, oh my gosh. In Massachusetts, those people wouldn't have even had anything to do with me. Um, I, I had some real run-ins in Massachusetts. Um, and that's not to say it's totally cruel. There was, there's a wonderful poet there, J.D. Scrimshire at University of at Salem State University, who's just wonderful, but I just don't think, I just think in Ohio, it's totally welcoming and nobody cares where your degree is from, or even if you have a degree, you know, you look at the people who are the officers and they have poetry association. I don't even know if all those people have the degree. Do I care? Um, they're wonderful poets. They're wonderful human beings. Um, and I just don't feel that was as true in Massachusetts. Massachusetts probably had more money. They certainly had more Harvards and more Boston University. They have wonderful poets. I mean, Pinsky is wonderful and he's very open and he does workshops for teachers. And my God, Seamus Haney was there giving, you know, you could walk onto the Harvard campus and hear Seamus Haney give a reading. So, um, you know, I'm not saying it was terrible, but if you're asking what the difference was, I think Ohio, probably because we're just ticks in the sticks that were a lot more welcoming and friendly to everybody that's awesome i'm gonna i'm gonna take that as a badge of honor <laughs> <laughs> uh well would you like to read a, a second poem before we head out sure um this one is older and a little not real old a little closer to home i mentioned i was working class and um i was gone for 40 years and moved back to live in the house that my dad built with his own hands when he came back from world war ii and suddenly all the sounds I was raised with came to me. And a lot of this um, are the sounds. The poem is titled Redurban, Ohio, which is just a little um, neighborhood that I live in that's right between Canton and Maslin. I wonder if there's anything else you have to know here. There is a quote from, there's a reference to a Plath quote here. Uh, she heard a factory pounding and she said it was like a heart. Mr. Cudioni was my chemistry teacher. 
And I will say that my grandfather was a train engineer who did have a special toot that he tooted to my grandmother as he came through town. <laughs> Redurban, Ohio. The boom of my youth wakes me now as it didn't then. The hammer I recognized later as the blunt indefatigable fact. The fact is that I have returned in my indeterminate age to this region of stainless steel and roller bearings. Himkin's cylindrical tapered spherical thrusted meter roller bearings. Platt was right too. It is not a heart. It's the drop forge plant, honey, my father answered when I asked. <laughs> and much later, I learned the forge drops a die. Larger, but like the die that took my grandfather's thumb. And only one die is needed to finish off any part. Now I know, too, that the extra space between dies is called the flash, which is what it has all gone by in, as other sounds of my youth, too, is particular rock and roll of WHBC-AM, along with the train passing behind our high school, forcing the band to pause in its halftime show, our teachers to wait mid-sentence for the loud, loud rush to finish. I recall Mr. Cudioni's voice intoning a mole. 6.02, then the stay, the wheel repeating, 6.02, 6.02, then times 10 to the 23rd. I do not know what a mole is, but it's trochees and iams. It's one anapest found in me as the whistle my engineer grandfather pulled to wave to grandma as he passed through town at 7 a.m., two longs and a short. Listen, she would say to me over our wheat checks. Listen. That's Thanks, wonderful. Jeremy. This was really fun. No problem. No, I, I the pleasure is all mine. I, I always wish these that these could be longer. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Diane, again, thank you. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's been great talking to you in the person. Likewise. Uh -huh.